Hello everyone, this is Maz. If you're hearing this message, it means you're not part of the Voices of War subscriber community and will only hear the first half of the episode. If that's enough, then I'm thrilled. However, if you're looking to dive deeper into the complexities of war, please consider subscribing to our private feed by using the link at the top of the show notes. By doing so, you'll gain access to all of our episodes, the ability to ask follow-up questions, and we'll become part of an exclusive community that makes this show possible. I hope you'll make the decision to join us today. Every single war that we've ever been in, except you might say in 1941, when we went to war against Japan to defend Australia itself. Now, in every other war that we have been involved in, going right back to before 1901, I might say, we have been there as a result of our British allies being at war or as a result of our American allies wanting us to join them in one. All the wars that Australia has fought with the United States since 1945, not one of which has ended in a victory for us, and every one of which has caused enormous suffering. We are making ourselves a forward base for the United States and hence a target for attack. Hello everyone, this is Maz. Just a quick note before we get to the next episode, with Dr. Alison Bronowski about how Australia decides to deploy troops to war. As will become apparent, I broadly agree with Alison's reasoning behind the need to change Australian war powers. I have previously expressed concern on the podcast and elsewhere about the fact that our leaders send our troops to war with impunity. To change this, we need to change the incentive structures and infuse greater accountability in the decision process. I believe that forcing the whole parliament to decide on whether we go to war or not is a small step in that direction. Importantly, as I explained towards the end of the episode, as my bias is obvious and strong in favour of Alison's position, I would really like to speak with someone who holds the opposite view. Someone who wants to retain the status quo and leave the decision to go to war with the Prime Minister and their cabinet. If you know of someone who is qualified to discuss this issue, please drop me a note on info at thevoicesofwar.com. Okay, now let's get to the discussion with Dr. Alison Brunovsky. My guest today is Dr. Alison Bronowski, who is an Australian academic, journalist, writer, and a former Australian diplomat. She has published several books, many of which explore how narratives surrounding war can shape identity, foreign relations, trade, and the future of a nation. Since her retirement from public service, Alison has taught at the Australian National University, Macquarie University, and Wollongong University. She is also the president of Australians for War Powers Reform. She joins me today to discuss the ongoing debate about how Australia deploys its troops, how this compares to other democracies, and what we can expect from the currently ongoing parliamentary inquiry into these questions. Alison, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War. Good morning, it's a pleasure. So before we dive into the topic of uh, war powers, uh, I think it's worth learning a little more about you. And, and given everything you've done uh, in your career, how do you describe what you do and how did it all start? Well, that's a long story, isn't it? 
I joined the Department of what was then External Affairs in the dim, dark ages in 1962, can mm-hmm. you believe, before any of your listeners were born, no doubt. <laughs> it's only and, yesterday, really. <laughs> <laughs> and um, together with my husband, who was also a diplomat, some of the time together and some of the time not, we went to all sorts of countries. Mostly we concentrated on Asia and Going twice for me to Japan really changed my life. I learnt Japanese and got into that in a big way. I did a few other things: <laughs> Burma, Iran, wow. uh, Philippines. Um, my husband was in Seoul for the um, Seoul Olympics. I was there for a year. Then I went to Jordan and Sharjah. Then I went to the UN in New York. And all of that sort of stuff. And most of the time, um, I was being, uh, you know, doing my best to represent Australia and do whatever it was that the Australian government wanted. But when I came back in 1996, I realized under a Howard government that I really wasn't going to be a very useful uh, person to have in the Foreign Service because I could see after the Pauline Hansen episode and all of that, that his approach to the Asian region that I had spent most of my life concentrating on was counterproductive and was taking us backwards to what we had hoped we'd left behind in the past. So mm. I resigned. That's interesting. And mm. I went... And I went to ANU, and by the age of 60, I got myself uh, a PhD, which <laughs> in, in Asian studies, um, which it kept me going on the Asian kick for quite a long time, which remains my main focus, I have to say. And that's one of the reasons, too, why I am doing what I do now, because I see no reason for Australia to be planning uh, a war in our region against any of our regional neighbours, and mm. I think such an idea is totally misguided, and I'm very disappointed that it hasn't died with the last government mm. um, together with their lack of interest in Asia because now we have an Asian-origin foreign minister who understands the countries and region, has done very well there, but she can't get past this defence business and these preparations for war against China, which are so irrational and so um, misguided. Mm, mm. That's partly what has led me to where I am. However, um, a few years ago, I, uh, in fact, 12 years ago, I joined a, a new movement called, uh, it was then called um, Siwi, Campaign for an Iraq War Inquiry, mm. which we never got. And then... Uh, it became Australians for War Powers Reform, so a broader agenda, not just an inquiry into how we went to war in Iraq, which was certainly still necessary, Mm. but a campaign to ensure that if a future government uh, proposed a war, that the way we decided on that would be different from what had been done in the past, and we can discuss that. Mm, Um, Then um, the president of that, was um, Paul Barrett, who was a former Secretary of the Department of Defence. And two years ago, to our great grief, uh, he died. 
And I had been vice president of the outfit and I was sort of forced into the chair uh, for which I was not nearly as well qualified as Paul. And I've been there ever since. So that's what we're doing. And we can talk about the current inquiry and we can talk about where that goes. Wonderful. There are so many interesting threads uh, uh, to unpack from what you just said. Um, and uh, as I said to you at the start, uh, before we started recording, uh, it won't come as a surprise to my audience at all uh, that I'm uh, speaking with you today because I've been, uh, in fact, on the record, uh, uh, rather critical of our decisions uh, to go to many of our wars, especially with uh, the way we go to war with our leaders effectively sending us to war uh, with near impunity uh, and as a serving member, as a uniform member. That concerns me slightly. But before we get to that, I do want to just uh, pick up on one of the first points you made, and that's the, that there was a change during the Howard government, uh, so w- when you, I guess, retired in 96. What do you mean by change? What, what was different? And also, how do you explain that? What motivated that change? Well, one thing I was doing on and off from being a diplomat was writing books, which is what I'd always thought I was going to do when I I left university. And in 1991, I wrote a book called The Yellow Lady, Australian Impressions of Asia. And that came out just at the time when Paul Keating became prime minister. And there was a huge, as a result of Keating's ideas, not mine, there was a huge upsurge in enthusiasm and interest in um, Asian countries. It had already been there to some extent, but Keating really encouraged it and made it something that people could talk about in a knowledgeable way and the study of Asian countries took off and my book took off Mm, (laughs) and, mm, mm. and, and it was a great time. And Keating still talks that talk every time he gets an opportunity. And in my view, he's still right. Now, that kept me going for quite a while mm-hmm. and, and a few more books as well. <laughs> but in 96, just after Pauline Hansen had started doing her anti-Asia uh, rhetoric, John Howard became prime minister, and he went around the region saying, Australia doesn't have to change to be who we are. And people in the countries that I knew just went, "Uh uh-oh, here we go again. They knew. They had seen Australia in the past. They knew what conservative Australian governments were like. They knew what their thinking was. They knew that all the talk that we had been going on with about multiculturalism and how Australia might even be part of Asia, that was the talk. They knew that that was so much, as the Filipinos used to say, palabas, Mm. rubbish, Mm, mm -hmm. you know, Mm. in a polite form. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And, And they just sort of gave up on us or waited until we got through our current unpleasantness, which took quite a long while for us to do. Mm, mm. And even when we did, everything changed in 2001 because of the war on terror. And foreign policy was militarised from there on in in Australia and elsewhere Mm. And the militarization, not only of our foreign policy, but of our whole society, has been a creeping phenomenon Mm. that most of your 
readers will have observed, I think. Mm, 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 and mm. the laws we have against terror are still there, and they enable all kinds of things to happen that used never to be able to happen. And we are actually, all of us, quite scared underneath mm. of saying or doing things that will get us into trouble with some very wide-ranging security laws. Okay. And so it becomes the, the media have been intimidated. They don't dare write the sorts of things they used to. In fact, anyone who does is, is vilified by the media themselves, mm. which is very disappointing. Mm. When we used to have quite a lively media debate going on, no longer. Mm. The same people reciting the same junk all the time, and most of it is directed at the support of the American alliance and the support of anything American, no matter what it is. Mm. Even during the Trump years, they were happily backing Trump. And governments being beholden to the mainstream media as they are went along with it, facilitated it, and are still doing that. That's why things have changed. And unfortunately, with the great change that we achieved last May in the federal election, which many of us hoped was going to change everything, it still has not changed the basis of our foreign and defense policy, mm. which is to do whatever the Americans want. Uh, and, and I guess that's, um, again, that's something I've spoken about on the podcast. Uh, it's become public discourse, public knowledge uh, that, for example, the war in Iraq, that we went to the war in Iraq uh, purely in support of our alliance and the need for the security umbrella uh, of the US, uh, rather for any uh, uh, altruistic reasons uh, of bringing democracy or even chasing out weapons of mass destruction, uh, which even at the time the evidence was rather dubious. Uh, and I guess that speaks to that point. Uh, and, and maybe this also brings us then to the uh, question of how Australia currently decides to send these troops. And I think John Howard for uh, the war in Iraq is a prime example uh, as to how we went. Uh, so maybe you can uh, enlighten our listeners. What is the current process? Uh, how does Australia decide to go to war at the moment? Uh, and who makes the decision? Okay, just to go back to your first point about the Iraq war, indeed, that is how we went into it, you're quite right. Um, maybe people don't remember that, but it's also the way Australia has gone to every war, every single war that we've ever been in, except, you might say, in 1941, when we went to war against Japan to defend Australia itself. Mm, mm, mm. Now, in every other war that we have been involved in, going right back to before 1901, I might say, mm -hmm. we have been there as a result of our British allies being at war or as a result of our American allies wanting us to join them in one. And so the Iraq war was no different to that. What was different in 2001 was how we got into Afghanistan. Mm. And as you would remember, John Howard was there on uh, September the 11th, and he immediately, in the plane, on the way back to Australia, he immediately, unilaterally, he and, and Alexander Downer, the foreign minister, 
invoked the ANSYS Treaty mm -hmm. and applied it to war anywhere in the world, which the ANSYS Treaty does not say. The I won't go into the ANSYS Treaty, but take it from me, as you know mm -hmm. already, mm -hmm. it doesn't. And so he committed Australia, just himself and Dana, to war, to the war on terror, which continues to this day. And that is what the Americans use to justify all their war expenditure now and get the money out of Congress, because the war on terror, as it was designed to do, has never come to an end. Mm. And it's still being fought. And every time there's a terrorism attack, as there was the other day in Somalia, the Americans went in and killed a whole lot of people just like that because they could claim that they were terrorists. And this happens all the time, and people don't even notice anymore. So... That's point one. Point two is how can Australia get out of this habit that we have had for more than a century? Mm. It's, it's deeply ingrained in the minds of our people. It's deeply ingrained in the minds of our politicians. And most of them don't dare to suggest anything different. Mm. Now, my organisation has been working for years, as I said, to get a change to the way Australia goes to war, which is, as you described, a decision made by the Prime Minister virtually alone or with a, a few close advisers who are appointed by him or her, and then it just happens. There is no consultation with, uh, well, there can be a, a debate in the Parliament, but that's just talk. It's The decision's already made. Mm. So what we have been trying to do is to change that not by a constitutional amendment, which was very hard to secure, but by a change in the law, the Defence Act, which has been used in recent times by the Prime Minister of the day to simply say to the Defence Minister of the day, dispatch the troops, manage the troops in such a way, this is Section 8, manage the troops in such a way as to send them to war. Mm. Now, what we want is a, a simple amendment to that which says before that happens, there must be a debate and a vote in both houses of parliament to approve that. And if they approve it, then it happens. Mm -hmm. If they don't, then it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And that is, in fact, what the British Convention does. They don't have a law because they don't have a constitution, but they have a convention that says, and Tony Blair did this mm. in 2003, mm. they must go to the House of Commons with a proposal to send troops to war. Tony Blair did that in, a, in obedience to the, the convention, and the Commons voted for it because mm. they believed his lie. So they've never done – well, they have done it again. In 2013, mm. David Johnson – David – who am I talking about? Not Boris Johnson. David um, – subsequent Oh, my God, yes. Minister. I can – Yeah. Yeah. Um, said, all right, 2013, the Americans want to attack Syria. We want to attack Syria with them. He took it to the commons and the commons rejected it. And, and so they learnt their lesson and they've never done it again. So mm. a convention, just keep that in mind because I'll come back to conventions yeah. later. A convention can't be relied upon to uh, do the right thing. So mm. where is Australia on this? We promoted the idea for a long time and a few forward-thinking people in the Labour Party got 
the Labour uh, National Conference twice in 2018 and 2022 to agree that in the first term of a Labour government, they would hold an inquiry into mm-hmm. how Australia goes to war. Mm-hmm. So we were very pleased that that was agreed to. We kept, kept on with our campaign. And then after Labour was elected in May last year, at the very end or towards the end of the year in late September, they announced that there would be the inquiry that been we had been waiting for for such a long time. Mm, mm, that mm, is now mm. underway, as you said. Yeah, and and we'll definitely get to that uh, because I think that's a really interesting point and uh, also a timely one because I think we're expecting some uh, results from that inquiry in the in the coming months. Uh, but just to uh, go back, and I think it was David Cameron is who we were both thinking of, and the name just wouldn't uh, come to us. Uh, but that's a that's a really good example where Blair used the convention uh, in two thousand three. And you know the, the the House of Commons supported and went again uh, to a war that ultimately proved to be ultimately an illegal war against uh, international uh, law and uh, you know breaching uh, the just war principles that we so hold dear, which kind of perhaps works against the point you're trying to make, though, isn't it? Because even Parliament, even if we have the debate in Parliament. It's, it was still a wrong decision. It was still misinformed uh, and ultimately proved to be wrong. So how can we, even if we did have the debate in Parliament, to whether to go to a war or not, how would that make us any more se- resilient to wrong reasons for going to war? Um, only as resilient as the democratic system allows. Mm-hmm. The people elect their representatives. The people sit, the representatives sit in the Parliament. They hear the arguments one way or the other, and they decide, and whatever they decide is the result of the democratic process. Mm. We don't have anything better. Mm. You might say, we need a a dictator who will decide the right thing. Well, that might not necessarily be be right either. So we're stuck with the system that we've got. And to that extent, my organization says, we have to accept the results of that. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if we argue for a debate and a vote and the debate and the vote go against what we think is right, well, we back off. Mm. But but here is the thing. When there's a debate, if the politicians know that every one of them have to vote on this instead of it just being a few ministers at the top who are mm-hmm. unaccountable to anybody – they themselves in both houses will have to face their own electors at the next election mm. who might say, you sent us to that disastrous war. You voted for that. What the hell do you think you were doing? Mm. You told us that this and this and this uh, were the reasons for why you have made that yeah. decision. Now, and, and you see, here's where one hopes the democratic process might work. It might concentrate the minds of a number of people who in the parliament who don't really think much about foreign policy or defence policy, leaving it to, you know, the higher-ups mm. and saying, oh, that's too complicated for me. I've got enough already to worry about with health, education and welfare yeah. and social services and all that sort yeah. of stuff, yeah. <laughs> which, of course, would be much better off if we weren't spending so much money on war. But they... Uh, would then have to take more of an interest. They would have to inform themselves 
They would have to vote. And even if, as some people say, well, they'll just vote the party line, well, they may, but on a matter like that, if the if the party in government has to rely upon uh, party discipline to get a thing like that through, um, I would be very surprised if they could do it because mm. particularly now we have back, we have cross benches, we have independents, we have a lot of people who are concerned about these matters. I think the result would be different from what. Uh, we've just been describing yeah yeah okay that's um uh, it strikes me as a really important point because what i hear you talk about is incentives it's it's ultimately putting measures incentivizing behaviors in the parliament from the elected officials or, or using their own internal uh incentives of staying in power so because the voters will judge them on their decisions rather than that occurring somewhere with impunity and ultimately everybody else in parliament just washing their hands off. Well, it wasn't my decision. Uh, I didn't have a say in it. It was the prime minister and the cabinet uh, that made those decisions. So therefore, uh, I have no, uh, I have nothing to answer for. Whereas what you're saying is if the parliament as a whole, both houses of the parliament are responsible, then every individual within those houses is ultimately responsible to their electorate. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, that's right. And and the other thing that, that gives us hope about that is that increasingly uh, from our polling in my organization and others who have done polls about this matter, the overwhelming majority, 80% plus of respondents say, of course, this needs to be changed. We can't go on like this. And particularly people who are watching what's going on and worrying that the next war might not be halfway across the world, but right in our region and right involving us. This is something that they can't afford to just forget about and leave to somebody else to decide. Mm. It's too serious for that. Mm, mm. And I think that's a really important point because I think many of us uh, are rather apathetic uh, towards war because we send our troops forth into you know far far away lands, and there's very little effect on the everyday Australians on on uh-huh. on those wars. Very little, uh, apart from the troops, of course, who we send, who come back with uh, all sorts of uh, injuries, whether mental or physical. But it's a very small percentage of the Australian population that has felt truly felt the wars in Afghanistan, the wars in Iraq, um, even you know our deployments to 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 East Timor, Solomon's, etc. Yeah. Well, the next one won't be like that, I can tell you. Yeah, yeah, and and that's uh, that's that's certainly a reason why I'm uh, rather vocal about this uh, this point as well. Although I do worry, and just to go back to one of those points about uh, you know whether the the whether the parliamentarians or the, or those who we elect will be held accountable both ways when we go to war and when we don't go to war. So, and again, an example. I wonder if you have any any figures or or, or any thoughts or any experience or understanding of whether the British. Uh, parliamentarians paid any price for choosing not to support uh, um, an intervention in Syria against uh, the Assad regime, uh, because that was one of the, that was the second circumstance you mentioned, uh, where Cameron ultimately listened to uh, the House of Commons and chose not to uh, to become involved, which of course uh, resulted partially to to hundreds of thousands of uh, of dead in Syria and millions displaced, etc. Yeah, it's. Um 
course, Britain's not the only country we should be comparing mm-hmm. ourselves with. But what what did happen then? I, I mean, your the the first answer to your question is why didn't the people get rid of the Tories? Well, because they weren't only thinking about war, that's why. Mm. Because what they were thinking about was Brexit. And mm. Brexit was, in in a way, a sort of the same as war thinking. It was finding en- foreign enemies, saying, we don't want those people over here. Mm. Very racist, mm. very xenophobic. And the Tories were... the, the Conservative voters were right behind the Tory party on that. Mm. And they only needed to pull that string and people would jump into line. And so when people vote for a government, they're not just voting the war issue. They're voting broader things. They're voting what they think is going to affect them economically and socially and so on. And that's how they played Brexit. Mm. And that's how they got a majority in favour of it. But what happened when Theresa May was Prime Minister, looking at David Cameron, remember, I forgot his name, Cameron, mm-hmm. David, looking at what David Cameron had done, she wanted, again, being told by the Americans and the French what was going on in Syria, and it was and it was false, by the way, about them using chemical chemical weapons on their own people. She wanted to do a bombing campaign together with the United States and France in 2018. And she didn't go to the Commons. She said in March that it was an emergency. And so they had to do it. It got put off. It didn't happen until Mm. April. And then they bombed these sites, pre-planned, pre-prepared, in Syria. What emergency was there for Britain? None. None at all. And so what you have to be very careful about, and people talk about this when we recommend a change in the war powers, they say, well, what do we do in an emergency? And we say, well, the emergency has to be genuine. If there's a genuine emergency, of course, every government has the right and obligation to defend its own territory. But that's not what Britain was doing. Mm. What Britain was doing was attacking someone else's okay. at, the, at the request of the United States, just the same as we do. And just on that, can I then ask you for your personal view on the on the idea of uh, responsibility to protect? So the idea of of uh, of uh, intervening to prevent, say, uh, genocide of one's own uh, people or where the people are simply powerless to defend uh, against a, a much stronger opponent and and. You know, I come from a country like that, uh, uh, Bosnia, where, uh, you know, the politics behind, besides, uh, and, and the reasons for the war in, in former Yugoslavia are, are varied and many. Uh, but uh, ultimately, it was, uh, it was uh, NATO that intervened uh, under the auspice of uh, R2P uh, to stop the war there and then. I'm, I'm, my opinions on that are, are, are again aren't, aren't clear cut. So I, I just wonder what you think about R2P in general. Then, uh, because if I'm if I understand what you're saying is that it, uh, an emergency would only constitute an attack on one's own sovereign territory. Well, that's what international law says, mm-hmm. and international law doesn't cover R2P mm. except to the extent that an R2P intervention has to pass through the UN Security Council. Mm. which then makes it legitimate. Mm. But I've never been a great 
supporter of R2P. I greatly respect what um, Gareth Evans and his colleagues did mm. mm-hmm. to get that mm. up. It was very, it was idealistically sound. It was humanitarian. It, it came from the best parts of human nature, if you like. Mm. But it's a little bit like prosecuting people for war crimes. It's funny how white males never get prosecuted for war crimes. Mm, mm, it's mm, always mm. it's always the others. Yeah. And it's the people who happen to be, uh, as, as in Bosnia and so on, it happened to be on the opposite side of the ideological fence uh, of the government governments who are making these decisions in the Security Council. Because, after all, the UN is not a democratic organisation at all. Mm. It's it's the powers that are given to the former five, the nu- nuclear-powered five victors of World War II, mm. are enormous. Mm. And it doesn't represent the will of the people of the world mm. who only get one each one vote in the General Assembly. Mm. They can mm. pass resolutions that don't change anything. Mm. Mm. So what I think about R2P is that it was a sort of a good-sounding way for interventions to take place in countries where what was happening was what we didn't like. But we didn't want to go in there and have a war. It was a sort of a a stepping stone before war without completing the crossover. Mm. And it hasn't worked quite frankly. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I don't mean to be kind of resistant, but I, I just wonder whether we can use the same argument as the one you said previously about, you know, it's the best we've got at the moment, given the circumstances. I just I just fear, and, and I totally empathize with your position, and, I, and I'm as dubious about the United Nations, the UN Security Council, and especially the veto powers, because when you're trying to do things on consensus, uh, that can be sideswept by one of the five simply through a veto, uh, well, then uh, you're not really going to achieve anything. But I guess, in a way, it's it's the best we've got. And in the absence of a a mechanism to respond as a world to to, to protect those who can't protect themselves, I just I just feel like we need something uh, because we are, if if we're not getting the resolutions through uh, you know the UN and UN Security Council. Then what's left? Because ultimately, it's people that are suffering, and Syria is a prime example. The Balkans are another. Libya is probably another more recent example. If we, if we, I guess, stand by and don't become actively involved, then then what remains? Yeah, I didn't mean to suggest, um, and I certainly don't believe mm. uh, that we ought not to support the UN mm-hmm. and all the good works that of it course, does. Yeah. I was only mm. talking about R two P. And, I mean, I worked at the UN and I have great regard for it with while recognising all its faults, which are those not mm. of the organisation but of the people involved in it, yeah, the countries yeah, yeah. and the decisions that are made there. Mm, the, mm, mm. the UN, as you say, is our last best hope. Yeah. It's all we have. And if we didn't have it, we would have to reinvent it in some way. Yeah that wouldn't necessarily be any better because there would still be people controlling the way uh, a new organisation was formed, just as happened in the first place. The yeah. only time you get this kind of of movement, international movement, for something as, as 
wide-reaching as the UN is after a catastrophic war. Yes. And that's yeah. how we yeah. got it after World War II. But yeah. even then, the United States wanted to control it and wanted it to do what it wanted and resisted it when it didn't. Mm. The UN, the United States, our great ally, does not accept the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court, mm -hmm. does not accept the International Court of Justice, does not sign up for numerous conventions that countries put their trust in because they want to run the show their own way. Mm. And that's what they do. Mm. And mm. unfortunately, Australia, a lot of the time, goes along with them. Mm. Now, we have been uh, lately starting to edge out of that a little bit on a few issues like Palestine and uh, climate change and things like that. Not, not that the US has got a, a position against climate change, but on certain weapons and so on. Australia has been trying to get back to the kind of agenda that we used to have under Labor governments. Mm. But we, as I said before, ever since the war on terror, we've been really living in the pocket of the Americans and they expect us to be there. Mm. So, so then in your view, doesn't Australia need, uh, I guess, our alliance to the US and that's in the security umbrella that it provides? I don't know what we need it for. That's a good I question. Mean, I, I talk to students. <laughs> that's a really good question. I mean, it's a yeah, that's a that's a very yeah. very good question. I talk to students about this, and they say, "But how can we possibly manage without the ANZUS Alliance?" And I say, "Well, what does it do for us?" Oh, I don't know. It protects us. It doesn't, as you know. It doesn't say that at all. It says mm. that it both countries, both Australia and the United States, when it was signed offered up the bare minimum commitment. They didn't offer to, to protect each other at all. What mm. they offered was to consult with each mm. other mm -hmm. in accordance with their constitutional processes. That's all. And it mm. also, in the event of an attack or, or a threat to either in the Pacific area, not all over the world, mm. as John Howard said, Mm, mm, mm. And at the very first article, Article 1 says that it is in accordance with the principles of the United Nations Charter. Now, the United Nations Charter says in its Article 1 that the threat and use of force will be refrained from. And what mm. are we doing? Threatening and using force wherever the Americans tell us to. Mm, so mm. what is what is the good of an alliance which, A, doesn't commit the other party to protect us, and B, makes us go into situations of great danger and loss of national interest for no good reason except that our ally tells us to? I mean, what Australia ought to be doing is saying to the United States, we need to review the ANZUS alliance and have a good look at it and see how it needs to be built up. If you'd like to hear the rest of this episode and gain access to all of the episodes of The Voices of War, simply become a subscriber using the link in the show notes. As you know, I will not feature any ads on the show, which is made possible solely through the support of our subscribers. If you find value in the content, you can become one now.